Well, good evening to you and Merry Christmas. I suppose if there's one good thing about the lights not being able to go off, it's that I can see you better. So Merry Christmas personally from me to you, and Merry Christmas to you uh, from all of us here at CBC. If you are visiting with us tonight, it's great to have you here. What I'm about to do tonight is not what I would typically do on a Sunday morning, and that we're usually working our way through a book of Scripture. This is more of a Christmas meditation for us. It is still good that we would go to God and ask Him for His help as we give attention to the truth of His Word. So let's pray. Our Father, we do come to You tonight, just like we do all the time, as very needy people. We are desperate for You to come and move by the power of Your Spirit. And so we pray that You would. We pray that You would pour Your Spirit out upon me and fill me as the preacher of Your Word that I might be helpful to these dear ones who have gathered here tonight. We pray for all of us that your spirit would fill us so that we might have ears to hear your truth and hearts that would love it. We pray that we would be filled with joy tonight. We pray that we would be filled with anticipation of Christ's return tonight. So we pray that you would now help us, Father, as we Think about your son. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So question for you. This is the participatory part, at least in your own mind. When I say Christmas, what do you think about? When I say Christmas, what pops into your head like first thought? Thank you for that. Santa, that's a good answer. This is helping me. <laughs> Perhaps for some, it, it might be something good, maybe a little bit sentimental, family traditions that you hold dear at Christmas time. Those things come to your mind. For others, maybe it's Christmas music. I'm sure there's more than one person in this congregation that's had the Christmas music on full blast since like November 1. And then there are the other people who are really annoyed with those folks. Maybe you do really love the songs that we tend to sing this time of year. Maybe for some it's the decorations, the lights, the sights and the smells of the season. Maybe for others, your minds go to baby Jesus in the manger. And maybe, if you're really good, your mind goes even to bigger things than just baby Jesus in the manger. You also Think about the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. You've got the entire nativity scene in mind. And you've got a beautiful one on your mantle at home. Sometimes, friends, even in the church, Christmas and the birth of Jesus can be somewhat disconnected from the rest of the year. And sometimes it can be disconnected, the birth of Christ, that is, from the rest of the Bible in some ways. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel contain accounts of the birth of Jesus. The birth narratives is what we call them. And whenever those narratives are reduced down to some kind of Christian version of Twas the Night Before Christmas, we sit around and read it on Christmas Eve. That's an indication of a theological problem. The Christmas story is much bigger than December the 24th. December the 25th each year. 
The Christmas story is itself a part of a much bigger story. It's part of the story of redemption that God has told and is telling. The Christmas story is a part of a story of two Adams. And I want to tell you that story tonight. So in the beginning, what remarkable words are those? You think once upon a time is cool. There are no bigger words ever written than those. In the beginning, no other story can claim it. God created the heavens and the earth. God made Adam, the first human being, in his own image. And he made him from the dust. In Genesis 1, we read that God created man in his own image. And the Lord God formed the man, Genesis 2 now, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And after making Adam uniquely in his image as the first man, God made Adam a helper in Eve. And then he made a covenant with Adam, an agreement of sorts. The Lord said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then specifically, with respect to Adam, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and put him there to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Many who are familiar with the story will know that Adam transgressed that agreement. He broke it. He broke that covenant. He sinned and rebelled against God. The word that we use is that he fell. He fell from a state of purity, righteousness, perfection. And he plunged himself and the entire creation and the whole human race to come into ruin. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, every kind of evil came into the world. That includes relational disaster. That includes a curse on the earth, the physical creation. Pain. Futility in all of our labor. Physical suffering. Physical death. Spiritual death, naturally. So we're born in a condition now where we're not spiritually alive to the truth. We're blind in our hearts and we're separated from God. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children and raise them for that matter. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. It's a mighty angel. Mighty angels. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So even, friends, in the midst of all of this horror and evil, God not only was righteous, God was also good. God was also merciful. He made another promise amidst the curses. A promise that we all cling to with our very lives. He made a promise of redemption when he cursed the serpent, the ancient one, the devil named Satan. To Satan, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That offspring is a singular word. That offspring was the promise of a coming redeemer. That offspring was the promise of a savior and a champion who would rule God's people, who would defeat the enemy, the enemies of God's children. It was a promise of the true and better Adam. That true and better Adam, his coming was predicted over and over again by God's prophets. God's children of promise anticipated his coming century after century after century. And then there came a period of time where God was silent in that his prophets didn't speak for 400 years. There was no more word from God. Still this longing and anticipation. Will the Redeemer ever come? Things were written of him long before he came. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born, before the second Adam came to earth. Things like this were written. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It was written of him, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The prophet Isaiah said of him, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. By his knowledge, the servant's knowledge, shall the righteous one Make many to be accounted righteous. Sounds just like Romans 5. And he shall bear their iniquities. And then, about 2,000 years ago, after those hundreds of years of silence, in a stable, most likely a cave of sorts, outside of Bethlehem, he was born. 
Though he was God incarnate, there was no earthly fanfare. There was no pomp and circumstance like you would expect for someone of his magnitude. When he was presented at the temple, a man named Simeon, who we're told was righteous and devout and had the Holy Spirit of God on him, Simeon took the baby in his arms and pronounced him to be God's salvation, both to the Gentiles and to Israel. At that same presentation at the temple, a prophetess named Anna heralded this baby as the redemption of Jerusalem, God's holy city. And then he grew up. When he was 30 years old, he too, like the first Adam, would encounter the serpent. Only this time, it wouldn't be in a garden paradise. This time, it would be in a desert wilderness. The first Adam had everything going for him when he faced Satan. The second Adam had every earthly obstacle stacked against him. Desert wasteland. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. By himself, completely alone. And in spite of every disadvantage, the second Adam, when he met the serpent, the second Adam succeeded. He did not fall. Praise be to his name that that's true. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. In spite of every disadvantage, he was victorious. And this is how his entire life would be. This second Adam's life. He would succeed where the first Adam failed. He was born of a woman. Though God was his father, he had an earthly mother. Born of woman, truly human, truly God. He was born under the law as a human being. Under God's holy and righteous law. The first Adam, you remember, had been given a covenant that he broke. The second Adam was given a covenant in the form of God's law that he fulfilled perfectly. And he didn't just do that for himself. It wasn't as though he lived this perfect life for his own good, merely. He fulfilled God's law and kept God's covenant for every single person that his father would give to him. He did it in their place. He then, at the right time, suffered death in the place of all of his people. Though he had never done anything to deserve death himself, and he had no sins to atone for himself, he took all of the sins of all of his people with him to a cross outside of Jerusalem. And there he was put to death. There he really did pay the ultimate price. He paid it all. He paid the sin debt of his people. He took God's wrath for that sin. Because God is a righteous God. God is a holy God who punishes evil. And so this second Adam took that for all of the children of God for all time. So that his people wouldn't have to pay that law so that his people wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God. When he died, as he did, physically died on a cross, outside the city, they put him in a tomb. He was there for three days. He was there Friday evening, first day. He was there all day Saturday, the second day. Then on Sunday morning, the third day, he got up. 
as only he could do, he took his life up again. The only one in the history of the world who could make such a claim. I will lay my life down. No one will take it from me. I have that authority. And I also have the authority to take my life up again. And because I have come to do these things, my father is very pleased. If anybody else had said that, it would have been lunacy or blasphemy. But when he said it, it was true. Sin and the serpent, when Jesus got up from the grave, the second Adam, when he rose again, sin and the serpent and death had been dealt a mortal blow. Their days were numbered. The champion had risen victorious. And he now sits enthroned in his heavenly kingdom with his father. He is at work by his spirit in the lives of every one of his people. And one day he's coming back. It's where we are. We're waiting. We're anticipating the return of the king. He has said, he has promised that we will be with him where he is. And that we will be able to behold his glory forever. He prays now to the Father. And we know that God the Father always hears the prayers of God the Son. It's certain that we will be with him. He will see to them. We are told to believe in, trust in, and hope in him alone. The reason for that is because this second, the true and better Adam, has accomplished everything that is necessary for salvation. All of the righteous requirements of God have been met. All of the righteousness that you would ever need or that I would ever need was counted to us the moment we trusted Christ. There is no greater news in the world. So this Christmas season, as we think on the great story that we find ourselves in, it is quite possible that on the one hand, things are much worse than we even realize. Sin is much worse than we often ever conceive it to be. It has affected us in ways that we don't even begin to understand. We are born into a condition of misery and suffering and wickedness and corruption that taints every aspect of our being. It taints every aspect of our world. And while it's actually on the one hand worse than we think, the great news is that the gospel and this great story of the second Adam is actually greater than we often think it to be. He has done far more than we often think that he has. The reason why we can say that he has paid it all and not just most of it or part of it is because it's finished. When he stretched out his arms, when he died on the cross, he uttered that banner, that slogan that we often utter, tetelestai, it is finished, and it is. It's over. The work of redemption is done. Perfect atonement made, perfect righteousness accomplished, counted to wretched sinners completely by faith in Jesus, the second act. So friends, as you read the Christmas story, maybe even this evening with your family before bed, as you read the birth narrative tonight, 
Thank God for this true and better Adam. Thank God for this God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, who has accomplished your redemption and mine. You see, friends, the Bible really is, in some ways, a story of two Adams. And it is true that everything we lost in the first Adam, we have in Christ. Thank God that he came. Let's pray. Our Father, words are, on the one hand, inadequate to thank you and to praise you the way that we should. And yet we know that you have given us just our human language to be able to speak to you. We do thank you very sincerely for redeeming us through your Son. We thank you very personally, Lord Jesus, for coming to redeem us from the fall. We pray for each of us that as we celebrate with friends, with family, with loved ones, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, we pray that we would be stirred in our hearts. We pray that our minds would be moved. We pray that we would know that we know that we know that our Redeemer lives and that He has accomplished our salvation. We pray that we would have complete and utter confidence in the righteousness of this second Adam that has been counted to us. We pray that we would live lives that honor you, Father, because you have made it possible through your Spirit. We pray blessings on each household represented here in this Christmas season. And we pray, should you see fit, that you would gather us together, wherever we may be this coming Lord's Day, to praise you again. <coughs> we thank you and we praise you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.